tonight, chapter 5, 28 through 30, uh, Sisera's mother is there and she says, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarries the clatter of his chariot? Sisera's mother is waiting for her son to return from battle. And it seems to be taking longer than she thinks it should take. And so she has become concerned. And her maidens begin to speak up to her and they begin to say, well, they're probably just dividing the spoils. You see, a girl for you and a girl for me and a garment for you and a garment for me. And they're just dividing it out and that's why it's taking so long. And so she becomes comforted with the thought that they're just dividing the spoil. But you know and I know that Sisera is not coming. You know and I know that Sisera is dead. You know and I know that a nail has been driven through his head and his chariot is not going to return. Now, many would suggest to us that we are like Sisera's mother. We are waiting for Jesus to return. We are waiting for Jesus to come. And yet they would suggest he isn't coming. They would suggest that we have placed our hope in something that isn't going to occur, that isn't going to happen. We're waiting in vain for the coming of his chariot. They would suggest to us that some nails were driven into his hands and into his feet. The Bible records that. They would remind us that a spear was thrust into his side, as the Bible records. They would suggest that he was placed in the tomb, that he is dead, and that we have placed our hope in one who is dead and who is not coming back. But we will not accept that. We will not accept that because Revelation 1 in verse 18 says, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. He is alive forevermore. And he made a promise to us that he was coming back. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you into myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Jesus said he was coming again. We're not waiting in vain for his chariot. His chariot is going to come. Psalm 104 in verse 3 says that he rides upon the clouds as his chariot. Acts chapter 1 talks about when the disciples saw Jesus ascend up into the heavens. He ascended up into heaven with the clouds. And the angels said that they were going to see him come in like manner. And Revelation chapter 1 in verse 7 says, Behold, he comes with the clouds. And every eye shall see him, including those that pierced him. They're going to look on him when he comes again. Jesus is coming back. And we can be confident in the promise that he made that he is going to do so. John 14 in verse 28, Jesus says, For you know that I told you that I am going away and coming back to you. Therefore, you should rejoice with me that I go to the Father because the Father is greater than I. Jesus said, I told you. 
I'm going away. I told you that I'm coming back. You can go to sleep at night. You can rest at night knowing that I'm going to keep my promise. I am coming again. But there's a question that comes to mind when we think about that. Why hasn't he come back yet? Why hasn't he come back yet? Someone says it's been 2,000 years. He said he was coming back, but he hasn't yet come back. Maybe he's not coming. Maybe we have placed our faith in something that's not going to happen. That was the issue that the early Christians were dealing with. Go to 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to spend our time in this text tonight because this is the very issue that Peter was dealing with. Peter was dealing with those who were questioning whether or not Jesus was coming back and why he had not already done so. Maybe that's a question that's on your mind tonight as well. Peter begins in verse 1. He says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, And of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust. He says some scoffers are going to come. Some people are going to come and they're going to mock the idea of Jesus' coming. They're going to cast doubt on whether or not He's coming back. The next verse says this. He says, and saying, where is the promise of his coming. Didn't he say he was coming back? Why hasn't he come? What is he waiting on? And no doubt the idea behind these passages is the fact that in the Bible we read a number of times that he's not only coming back but that he's coming back quickly. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 11, Jesus said, behold I come quickly. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 7, he said, Behold, I come quickly. Revelation 22 and verse 12, Behold, I come quickly. Revelation 22 and verse 20, Behold, I come quickly. And John answered, Even so come, Lord Jesus. That's how the Bible ends. Even so come, Lord Jesus. Can you say that tonight? Can you say tonight, Come, Lord Jesus. Or are you thinking in your mind, I hope he doesn't come tonight. I'm not ready for him to come tonight. There's something I need to do. There's something I need to change. There's something that's out of place or out of order in my life. There's still somebody I need to talk to. There's still somebody that I need to study with. There's still somebody that I haven't even brought him up to yet. Or can you say with John, even so, come Lord Jesus. Because if you can't say that tonight then maybe you need to give some serious consideration to the changes that need to occur before you leave tonight. If you can't say what John said. But Jesus made the promise that he was coming quickly. And yet these scoffers would say, where is the promise of that coming? Why has he not done that? Why has he not already come? What is taking him so long? Well, Peter's going to answer that for us. Now you'll see in the context that these scoffers are walking according to their own lust. 
because they don't think Jesus is coming back, because they don't believe in the promise of His coming, they're living fleshly, sinful lives. They're engaging in whatever activities they want to engage in because Jesus has not yet come back. And they doubt if He ever will. But for those of us who believe in His second coming, we're living in anticipation of that. We're living in holiness ready for His coming. Notice in the context of 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, concerning this, says in verse 13, Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. He says, we're looking for the fulfillment of His promise. And because of that, we're looking for a place where righteousness dwells. And we know that if we want to live there, we're going to have to be righteous. These false teachers, they didn't believe that. They weren't living that way. Look at verse 11. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? You see, if we believe in the second coming of Jesus, that should be reflected in the way that we live our daily lives. If we believe in that, then we should be living holy lives. We should be conducting ourselves in godliness because we know that He's coming back and we want to be ready when He comes. But these false teachers did not believe in that coming. They were not living those kinds of lives. They said, for since the fathers fell asleep, in verse 4, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. They say, you know what? Things have just continued since the creation of the world. There's been no interruption of that since the beginning of time. And they said, it's just keep, it's continuing to go as it always has. Now, this is what Peter said. Peter says, for this, they willingly forget. He said, they have willingly forgotten some. They have willingly forgotten three things about God. He said, first of all, they have forgotten the character of God. He said in the second place, they have forgotten the calendar of God. And in the third place, he says, they have forgotten the compassion of God. They have forgotten these things about God. Those are the things we want to talk about tonight. As we try to answer the question, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? First of all, let's talk about the character of God. They're questioning the character of God. They're saying everything has continued from the foundation of the world the same as it's always been. Peter says they're willingly ignorant of something. He said, first of all, they're willingly ignorant of the fact that God once destroyed the world with water. Look at the context, beginning in verse 5. For this they willingly forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. What Peter is saying is they are willingly ignorant of the fact that God once said he was going to destroy the world with water. And God did exactly what he said. And God has promised that in a future day that He's going to destroy the world with fire. And Peter says He's going to do exactly what He promised to do. God's going to keep His promises because that's the character of God. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 18 says that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, God cannot lie. 
We have a hope that is sure and steadfast. We have a hope that anchors us because of the immutability, because of the dependability of God. Because God makes promises and He keeps those promises. Just as God made a promise to Noah and He kept it, He's made a promise to us and He is going to keep that. God told Noah in Genesis 6 and verse 3 that His Spirit would not always strive with man that there was coming a time when his spirit would no longer be able to walk with man. He he told Noah in Genesis 6 and verse 13 that he was going to destroy the ungodly with this flood that was coming into the world. They were not going to be preserved. God kept his word to Noah. As we think about that, we're reminded of the fact that God always keeps his word. Numbers 23 and verse 19 says that God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. God is not promised and won't fulfill that promise. God has not spoken and will not make that good. No, God's going to do exactly what he said he was going to do. But they were questioning the character of God. They were questioning whether or not God keeps his word. Peter says he does. He says in verse 8, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. He says they forget some things, but I don't want you to forget something. I want you to remember something that they seem not to know. He says I want you to remember the calendar of God. They have forgotten the character of God. They have forgotten the calendar of God. You see, they don't understand the way that God keeps track of time. They don't understand that a day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. He said they don't get that. They don't understand the calendar or the clock of God. They don't understand how God keeps up with time. And so when God says, I'm coming, and He says, I'm coming quickly, He says they don't understand what God meant by that. And he's going to explain exactly what God means by that. Now, you say it's been 2,000 years and Jesus hasn't come back yet. Well, in the way that God keeps time, that's not very long. If a thousand years is as a day and a day is as a thousand years, that's just about two days. That's not very long, the way that God keeps time. Now, the way that we look at time, that seems like a long period of time. 2,000 years seems like a long time, but it doesn't seem that way to God because God doesn't dwell within the same realm of time that we do. He doesn't look at things with the same viewpoint that we do. You remember Isaiah would say in Isaiah 55, 89, that the ways of the Lord are not the ways of man. The thoughts of God are not the thoughts of man. God doesn't think like we think. He doesn't count like we count. He doesn't look at things in the same way that we look at them. And so we tend to judge His promise by our own viewpoint rather than looking at it from His viewpoint of the way that He keeps track of time. But I want to suggest to you that the Gospels anticipated the fact that we would not understand things exactly as as God does. For example, in Matthew chapter 25, in this chapter we have two parables that deal with the second coming. And these two parables explain the fact that we are surprised by the fact that it's taking longer than we thought it was going to take. So look at Matthew chapter 25 and look at verse 5. It says, but while the bridegroom was delayed... 
They all slumbered and slept. These ten virgins are awaiting the coming of the bridegroom. They're expecting him to come at a certain time, and yet he doesn't come at the time that they expect. He doesn't come as soon as they expect him to come. Now Jesus, when Jesus said, I, In my Father's house are many mansions, if it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. He's using wedding language. That's wedding language. Father's house is talking about wedding language. The idea is this. The bridegroom would leave the bride. They were espoused to each other. They were engaged to each other. They were going to get married. But he would go back to the father's house and he would spend some time at the father's house. Usually about a year. And during that year, he would add a room on to the father's house. That room would be where he would bring his bride back to the father's house. It's where they would begin their lives together. And so Jesus, of course, left earth. He went back to the father's house and he's preparing us a room there. He's preparing us a place there. And at some time in the future, he's going to come and get us and take us to the father's house. That's the language that's being used here. Now, during this year, the bride, she was getting her wedding gown prepared. She was getting everything ready for the coming of the bridegroom. She didn't know exactly when he was going to come, but she was living in anticipation of that. She was supposed to be keeping her lamps trimmed with oil. She would light these lamps and keep them burning into the night. She would keep them burning into the night because she was hoping that this would be the night when he would come. But these foolish virgins had let their guard down. They had not kept the oil that they needed for their lamps. And they're going to miss his coming. You know, it's interesting that if you had asked a bridegroom in the first century, when are you going to go get your bride? You know what he would have said? Only my father knows. He would have said, I don't know when that is. Only my father knows. He would have waited for the father to say, son, go get your bride. And then he would have gone to get his bride. That's exactly what Jesus said in Mark chapter 13, verse 32. He says, but of that day and that hour, no man knows. Not the Son, nor the angels, but my Father only. He says, only my Father knows that hour. I'm waiting for my Father to tell me to go get my bride. We see this wedding language. We see this promise. And we see that this period of time, that's a relatively short amount of time, may seem like a longer period of time to us. It may seem as if He has been delayed in His coming. Look at Matthew chapter 25 and verse 19. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 19. Another parable of the second coming. This is the parable of the talents. And in this parable, we're going to see that the language is that it's been a long time. It says in verse 19, After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And so he gives out the talents, five to you, two to you, one to you. Then he goes away, and after a long time, then he comes back. So this is talking about the second coming, but the language that is used is speaking of it as being a long time. Probably from the viewpoint of man, it seems long. It seems like the master who gave out these talents has been gone for a long time. Maybe on the master's viewpoint, from his standpoint, it's only been a couple of days. Not been very long at all. But from our viewpoint, it seems like a long period of time. 
Now the interesting thing about that is, this one talent man who's gone and dug a hole in the earth and buried his talent, because it's been a long time, he's had the opportunity to go and dig up that talent and put that talent to you. He's had opportunities to, to realize the mistake that he's made and correct that mistake and not be found that way when his master comes. But he doesn't use the time that he's been given. Look at Luke chapter 12. Another passage that suggests that maybe from the way we look at things, we may think of it as a long time when really it isn't that long. Luke chapter 12 talks about the danger when we begin to see the second coming of Jesus as something that's a long time away. We tend to act in a way that we ought not to act. In Luke chapter 12, he's talking about this beginning in verse 40, he says, Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Look at verse 45. But if that servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink, and to be drunk. What's he doing? He says, Well, he's been away a long time. And he begins to think he's not going to come. Or at least it's not going to be anytime soon. And so I'll just live my life and I'll do with my life what I want to do. That's the danger. When it seems like a long time to us, we tend to act as if he's not coming back. We tend to act as if it's not going to be anytime soon. And we end up getting into problems when we do that. And so he's correcting them and helping them to understand that with the Lord, it's a small period of time. But with us, it may seem much longer than that. But then he says that they do not understand the compassion of God. He says, you do not understand the character of God. You think that God says things that he's not going to keep. You, you think that God is, is keeping time the same way that you keep time. And his calendar, his clock isn't like that. But then he says, you don't understand the compassion of God. Look at verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. He isn't slow concerning His promise. He isn't slow to do what He said He was going to do. That's what these false teachers were saying, is He's slow, He's not keeping His promise. But Peter says the Lord is not that way. As some count slackness, as they count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He says, they don't understand the compassion. They don't understand that God doesn't want anyone to perish. They don't understand that God wants everyone to come to repentance. And so they don't understand that God has not sent His Son back yet because God is giving men time to repent. God's giving men time to correct the mistakes in their life. Because God's long-suffering. He's patient with men. He's going to say that again. Look at verse 15 down in the context. He says, And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. As also one beloved brother, Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. He says the long-suffering of God is salvation. Have you ever thought about the fact that if God had come back six months ago, there perhaps are those that are here tonight who would have been lost. But during that six months of time, you've obeyed the gospel during that six months of time you've been restored, during that time that you were given, you've made use of that time. And so as a result of that, the long-suffering, the patience of God has led to your salvation. 
We ought to be thankful that God is a patient and long-suffering God because that leads to us having the opportunity of being I want to give you three examples from the Bible of where someone's destruction was set in place. In other words, the, the clock was ticking. They were moving rapidly toward destruction. And yet God, with His long-suffering nature, gives them the opportunity to repent and change. The first one is the, those of Noah's day. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 20, the Bible said, When once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that's eight souls, were saved by water. So God waited in the days of Noah. God told Noah, I'm going to destroy the world. My spirit can't continue to strive with man. I'm going to destroy the world, destroy those that end the world. Only you and your family in the ark are going to be spared. But God in His long-suffering nature waited to give individuals the opportunity to be saved. Peter was a preacher of righteousness. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. Noah was, was preaching. Noah was giving them the opportunity to turn from their wickedness to come back to God. Now, there were only eight souls that were saved by water. We often make the point that no one heeded the preaching of Noah. That only Noah, his wife and his sons and their wives were on board the ark. But I want you to get a timetable with me. God told Noah that he was going to destroy the world when Noah was 500 years old. When Noah was 600 years old, the flood came. So there's a hundred year period of time in there. God said in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 3 that 120 years is as long as his spirit is going to continue to strive with man. So we're looking at a 120 year period. A hundred of those from when he tells Noah <coughs> to... We have the coming of the flood. Now it was during that hundred year period that we find that Noah's sons were born. During that hundred year period. It was during that hundred year period that his sons must have found their wives and began homes of their own. So God says, Noah has found grace in my eyes. Noah has these sons. They find their wives. And then these eight souls are going to be on board the ark. I want you to think about this with me. If you're a father and you know that the flood is coming and you know it's roughly a hundred years away, how are you teaching your boys? How are you teaching your... You know if they don't get on board that boat, they're not going to make it. If they don't get on board that boat, they're going to be lost. How much emphasis do you put on them knowing God and knowing God's Word? And being what they need to be. How much emphasis do you put on who they marry? And who they're going to join themselves to for the rest of their lives? Because you know how husband? Are you going to save your wife? Wife, are you going to save your husband? 1 Corinthians 7.16 There's not a more important decision outside of obeying God that they're ever going to make than in the one that they choose to marry. And you know, if they don't marry the right person, they're likely going to miss the boat. Oh, it's important. And you would, have, you would have done everything within your power to try to save those of your own family. We may speak of Noah as a failure. I don't think Noah was a failure. I don't think any father that gets his children on board the boat 
is a failure. I don't think any husband who, who helps his wife to get on board that boat is a failure. I think they are a success. If they never convert anybody outside of them, their own family, they're a success. You know, if you fail to get your children to heaven, you fail to get your mate to heaven, then on a very large scale, you have failed. There's nobody in life that you should have more influence with, that you should have more ability to affect the outcome than with those individuals. Those individuals more than anyone else should be on board that boat. And God waited in the days of Noah in order for Noah to get his sons, to get their wives, to get his wife on board that boat. And when the flood came, eight souls were saved by water. But let me give you another example of that. Go to the book of Jonah. Go to Jonah chapter 3. You remember that God had told Jonah, go to that great city, Nineveh, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. Now Jonah originally tried to run from that. He tried to run the opposite direction of what God told him to go. But in Jonah chapter 3, he's been spit out by the well. He's got his attention focused back where it needs to be. And so he's now doing what God told him to do. And he comes to Nineveh. And he begins to cry to Nineveh. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. He said 40 days. The clock is ticking. 40 days and you're going to be destroyed. And yet we know that Nineveh was not destroyed in 40 days. And we know the reason why. We know that through the preaching of Jonah, they repented. From the king, the highest position in the land, all the way down to the lowest position in the land, even the animals were clothed with sackcloth. They repented. And because they repented, God spared them. And Nineveh is going to go on to last another 150 years. They were within 40 days of destruction, and yet they get an additional 150 years because they repented and came back to God. Why? Because God is long-suffering. Because God does not want anyone to perish. Because God wants all men to come to repentance. And when Nineveh did that, God said, I'm going to be patient with you. Now, Jonah doesn't like it. He didn't like it at all. In Jonah chapter 4 and verse 2, in fact, he's complaining to God. God, was not this my saying when I was in my own country? Didn't I say to you that if Nineveh repented, that you would forgive them? And I didn't want you to do that. I didn't want you to be gracious to them. But I knew you would be. If I preached and they listened, I knew that's what you would do. Why? Because God is long-suffering. What about Luke chapter 13? In verses 7 through 9, through that context, Jesus tells another story. He tells a story about a fig tree. The master, owner of the vineyard, comes to his vineyard, and in this vineyard there's a fig tree that's been planted. And he comes to that fig tree, and he's looking for fruit. But he doesn't find any fruit on the fig tree. It's been three years. He should expect fruit by now, but no fruit's being produced. And so he says to the servant, cut it down, get rid of it. It's unfruitful. And, and, the, and the keeper of the vineyard, the keeper of the fig tree says, oh, let me dig around it. Let me fertilize it. Let me give it some extra care. And if after another year it doesn't produce, then we'll cut it down. But let's give it one more year. And so the master gives it one more year. That's a picture of the Jewish nation. 
It's a picture of the fact that the Jewish nation had not been bearing fruit for God, but God was patient and God gave them a little bit longer to bear fruit because God is such a long-suffering and patient God. I can't speak of when exactly Jesus is going to come back because I don't know that. And anyone who says they know that, they're not telling you the truth and you ought not to listen to it. The Bible says that God has appointed a day in which He'll judge the world, Acts 17, 30 and 31. The Bible says that there is the day of the Lord that's coming, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. The Bible says that there is a day and an hour that's coming. John 5, 28 and 29, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves will hear His voice and will come forth. They that have done good in the resurrection of life, they that have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. The Bible says that we do not know the day nor the hour. Matthew 25 and verse 13. Matthew 24 and verse 36 says, But of that day and that hour, no man knows. Have you thought about the language? A day, the day. The day, the hour. That day, that hour. We go from what is rather generic, a day, to the day. We go from the day to the day and the hour. And then we get to that day and that hour. God's trying to get us to focus in on the fact that there is a day coming when Jesus is going to come back. There is a day coming when the earth is going to pass away with a great noise. There is a day coming when the elements are going to melt with a fervent heat. There is a day coming when this world in which we live isn't going to be here anymore. And the Bible says that we need to be ready when that day comes, we need to be ready for the coming of Jesus. We need to be ready because we don't know when that will be. But we have every reason to believe that it could be at any You know, those scoffers that were creating so much confusion in the minds of the disciples had them concerned that that day had already come. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, there were those that were concerned that their loved ones who had already died we're going to be left behind. They, they weren't going to be resurrected. And so Paul wrote those words to comfort them. And he explained to them, we which are alive to the coming of the Lord, you know, we're not going to prevent those that are asleep. Jesus is going to raise them first. And then we're going to get to join them and the Lord in the air. Don't worry about them. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And notice what Paul writes to the Thessalonians because they're being troubled by the words of these false teachers because these false teachers are causing them concern. He says, Now brethren, in verse 1, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter as if it is from us as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that's called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So Paul says, you're concerned that the coming of Jesus 
is, is, is right now, and you've quit work, you're not doing anything, you're just waiting for Jesus to come back. Paul says, Jesus can't come until some other events take place for him. Until this man of sin, this son of perdition, until he's revealed. Until this falling away comes first. Now the interesting thing is, that has already occurred. That occurred in 1 Timothy chapter 4, in verses 3 and 4. Where Paul says that some were going to depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. And he talked about they were going to forbid to marry and command to abstain from meats. You go back in church history and you'll see that those are doctrines that were presented through Roman Catholicism. Those were doctrines that came with a departure from the faith. Those things began to be taught in practice. That's already occurred. Now, Jesus couldn't come until that happened, but that's already happened. So there's nothing preventing Him from coming now since those things have already taken place. So Jesus could very well come tonight. Why hasn't Jesus already come? Well, Jesus has not already come because the Father has not told Him to come yet. Why hasn't the Father told Him to come yet? Well, maybe because the Father is waiting. He's waiting for individuals to hear the preaching of the Gospel and to respond to that preaching. It may be that God is waiting for men to come to repentance as in the days of Jonah. It may be that God is waiting for the tree to bear fruit after a number of years of being unfruitful. It may be that God is waiting for us to be busy doing what He's asked us to do so that more and more people can go to heaven. God is long-suffering. And that's why God has not yet sent His Son back to get us.